uh, in the city of Bab in the area of Babylon. He is a contemporary of Haggai, who exhorted the people in rebuilding the temple. Zechariah's message was that the Israelites are to return to God, repent of their sin, and commit to finish the construction of the temple that had started many years before. Similar to Daniel, Zechariah was given many visions, and like Daniel, Jeremiah, and Samuel, he was young. And young age is no issue with God in whom he chooses to live. So verse 2 is the indictment by God. The Lord has been very angry, full of wrath, with your fathers. They had rebelled against their covenant relationship with their God. They had rejected the prophets and their plea to repent. And they had refused to stop their idolatry. <clears throat> but now God was ready to turn from his anger and comfort this returning generation of Jewish people. <clears throat> Our first priority, a first priority rather, was their need to put away sin that had brought about their destruction in the first place 70 years prior. We don't often like to think about the reality and the truth that God is a God of wrath, that he has wrath towards sin. The Jewish people had sinned and sinned, and there was no repentance, and there was no more remedy. The time of judgment and his patience had run out, and judgment had come. There's an important lesson for us to remember from this. We cannot excuse away our sin or think that we can continually delay in obeying him because we're presuming on him being patient with us. Thankfully, he is patient, but there is a time where he will deal with us in discipline. Therefore, say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is a name for God, reminding us of his attributes. It's used in this one verse, just three times in one verse, and over 50 times in the book. As one author put it, because... God is and will be who he is. God created and governs and leads the angels as the armies of heaven to accomplish his purposes and his creation. Everything and everyone is at his disposal. The prophet calls uh, Israel, who had returned to the land, to return to their God. It's a reminder that the condition of his presence with them and acting on their behalf demanded that they return to him. And even though they had put away idolatry, there was a danger of just having outward lip service instead of heart. And God is repeatedly called, as I said, the Lord of hosts. I remind you again, it's a reference to his absolute boundless resources at his command for his people. And the word return has the same meaning of the Greek word for repent. One author put it this way, the condition for their receiving divine blessing was not simply just to resume building the temple, but to return to him, not just to the Lord's law or to his ways, but to the Lord himself. The repentance two months before that you read about in Haggai chapter 1 apparently involved an incomplete commitment resulting then in the delay of the temple being rebuilt. So now a complete return to the Lord would be bring about this divine blessing of obedience expressed by the words, and I will return to you. What a gracious God that we have, who loves us so tenderly, even after we blow it. We return to him, and he does return to us in fellowship. Our responsibility, after God reveals sin in our hearts, is to turn from that sin and return to him, so fellowship with him is completely restored. 
If you're like me, and God has dealt with you at different times about different things in your life, whether it's an attitude, whether it's a habit, whether it's an action, and he has dealt with your heart, you need to stop that, you need to do this. And there is a danger in postponing obedience due to rationalizing away why certain things really are okay, even though others may be able to do this, but he's pricked your heart that this is not okay. This verse is for you and for me. Return to me, says the Lord, and I, uh, the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. I don't know if there's any area in your life you need to return to him in the sense of repentance and getting things right, but don't postpone those areas he's brought to your attention. Don't postpone your obedience. Well, there's an illustration of what not to do in verse 4. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets preached, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not hear, nor heed me, says the Lord. <clears throat> One would hope that you would be able to say to a child, Follow the example of your parents or your grandparents. But that was not the case. Had Ancestry.com existed back at this time, it would have been a very disappointing search. <clears throat> Anyways, their forefathers had completely turned a deaf ear to the messages of the prophets sent by God, even though they thought they were doing okay, because now they had no idols while they were back in Israel. Yet there was a danger of just having lip service instead of giving their hearts to him totally. And what was true then is obviously true now. Repentance must always come before blessing. There must be a turning from sin. In verse 5, Zechariah asks two rhetorical questions. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? The obvious answer is no. Their forefathers and the prophets were all dead, but the words of the prophets had all been fulfilled. Such is the case with this generation. If they do not repent, it's amazing that God gives people so much time to repent. But once that opportunity is gone, destinies are sealed. And just as their forefathers had faced horrific consequences for their failure to repent, the same would be true of this generation if they weren't faithful in their obedience. So during captivity in Babylon, obviously, there were many who came to repent of their sins that they had been involved in, recognizing God was just and allowing them to be taken off to captivity and their nation to be scattered and destroyed. And the call still goes out to you and to me today. When we confess our sins against God and repent, restoration and fellowship begins anew. So as I said earlier, is there anything you need to turn from so that you can return to Is the life you live, the character that you have, a model to follow? Or is it like in this verse, a poor uh, example not to follow? We need to be grateful for God's amazing patience with us all, but don't presume that that patience um, is forever. Do not delay obedience. Now we have come to the visions of Zechariah, and soon after the construction of the temple resumed, God gave Zechariah a series of eight night visions concerning God's care for Judah in the present as well as the future. All eight visions came in one night. Not a good night rest for the man. Um, and it came as divine revelations while he was awake. 
So these visions are prophetic looks at events that extend from Judah at the time when Zechariah receives this, when they're back in the land, and they also go way into the future of Israel's Messiah who will return to set up the messianic millennial kingdom. The exact date of these visions is seen in verse 7. It was some months after Zechariah's message to repent that we just looked at, and we are at the end of the second year of Darius' reign. So the vision of the horsemen. I saw by night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse, and it stood among the myrtle trees, or the shrubs, in the hollow, or a ravine, with red sorrel and white horses behind him. The man riding on the red horse is identified in verse 11 as the angel of the Lord who is often referred to in that way, and he is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. So this is the Jewish Messiah, but this is before his incarnation. The other riders are angels accompanying him, and it's clear the rider on the red horse stands above the others in authority, fear, and in dignity. The other riders are in a ravine, maybe the Kidron Valley, or some low-lying area around Jerusalem. Some think that that represents uh, a low place, which... Israel found themselves in, surrounded by the Gentile world powers around them. But there is a physical presence of the Messiah here, and he cares for his covenant people, and he stands ready to deliver them from the Gentile nations. Other riders are mentioned on a variety of different colored horses, but no explanation is given about the colored horses, so there's really no reason to speculate about that. Verse 9, Zechariah asked the angel, like what we're asking, what? What is it? Okay, the angel speaking to Zechariah was a communicating angel whom he calls Lord, lowercase l, a respect, uh, a greeting of respect, but not deity. The explanation given is that the mission of the riders on these horses are investigating conditions around the world, as if on a reconnaissance um, move to patrol the entire earth and then come back and report the condition of the Gentile world. And they all report to the angel of the Lord that all the earth is resting quietly. So in 520 BC, the Persian Empire had secured peace. So while the Gentile world was briefly at a time of peace, Judah, they have no security. They have no comfort. It's so encouraging to see here the heart of God and his amazing mercy and concern. Those who had been chastened by the Lord with captivity now need his comfort. And in a most unusual role, the angel of the Lord, pre-incarnate Jesus himself, intercedes before God the Father on behalf of his people. The role of the coming Messiah was to represent God the Father to the Jewish people when he would come and be born and be presented as the Messiah. But here, he's interceding for them, even before his incarnation. The Messiah pleads to the Father in verse 12, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which you were angry these 70 years? This prayer by the Messiah asks the Father to remove his hand of chastening from Judah and then bring a quick end to the suffering of the Jewish people after this 70-year captivity and finally restore Judah and Jerusalem. God the Father answered the angel of the Lord through the interpreting angel. He did so with good and gracious and comforting words in verse 13. The angel explaining the vision describes the type of mercy God would have on Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. God has such a great love and zeal 
for his people and for this city. He has an all-consuming covenant love for Jerusalem and the Jewish people. And this love is similar to a devoted husband's love for his wife who wants to protect her from being harmed by others. God's great zeal includes his anger regarding how cruel the nations had treated his city and his people. God is angry with the nations who are at ease. God's anger is because of the cruelty that they had done to Judah, far beyond what his purposes were. The nations further angered God as they lived with great ease and comfort with no thought to the condition of Israel and Jerusalem. Verse 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. So looking back to all that he said in this first vision, reasons are now given for God's good and comforting words of love to Judah. Really, in these verses, God gives six promises to the city of Jerusalem and his people. God will return to Jerusalem. I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. Like a loving mother tenderly caring for a child, so is God toward his people and his city. The temple of God will be built. The boundaries for Jerusalem will be reestablished. A surveyor's line will be established out over Jerusalem to ensure the exact location of the buildings being rebuilt in the city. And fourth, God will restore the cities of Judah, and once again, they will prosper. Verse 17, my city shall again spread out through prosperity. Can you imagine having come, whether you're a child or an aged person, from 70 years captivity back into a land desecrated and just destroyed, and you're trying to build these things and trying to even have any idea of what it used to be like here. But to hear these promises made that God is telling Zechariah to tell the people who had suffered so much at the Babylonians' hands, what comfort, what hope the prophet brought. Fifth, God gives comfort to Judah, saying, The Lord will again comfort Zion. The small remnant of, people, remnant of people returned to Babylon, coming back probably with very little in their hands. What a hope they were given, what encouragement of what is yet to come. God reaffirms his divine election for the Jewish people. He will again choose Jerusalem, even though God had dealt severely with their sin and rebellion. He never removed his divine election for his uh, people or for his city that he loves. All of these promises were partially fulfilled in Zechariah's day, but a greater, more perfect fulfillment is yet to happen when the Messiah returns the second time. Then he will judge Israel's enemies and bring absolute fullness to, to uh, Israel at that time. So these six promises he has made, and I can't help but think the Lord knows we all need hope. We all need encouragement. We all need rest that comes from his promises. And it is his word that gives us his promises and teaches us truth. So when we are downcast, I love what the psalmist said, why are you downcast on myself? You have to talk to yourself. Speak truth to yourself. What's the truth? The truth in the word of God. And we have to keep reminding ourselves and speaking truth to ourselves so our minds don't go off into wild, uncontrolled, fearful thoughts. Anyways, we should be able to relate how meaningful these words would have been to Zechariah and the remnant there with him in Jerusalem. Next is the vision of the horns, and the comfort we've seen in this first vision, and what's coming, and the hope that you have in, the, in Israel, 
is a total contrast here in the second and third visions. The second vision shows God's judgment on the nations that have afflicted Israel. And the third vision we'll see next week in chapter 2 shows God's blessing as he prospers Israel. The vision of the four horns and four craftsmen just show us how God is going to execute his anger that he mentioned in verse 15 towards the Gentile nations. The nations who scattered Israel will ultimately one day be crushed by God. In verse 18, as Zechariah looks up, he sees four horns. And he asks, just like us, what are these? And he answered, the angel answered, these are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. So the word horn, I'm sure as you did the lesson you saw in scripture, speaks about nations or particular individuals with great power, pride, and oppression. It often speaks of the Gentile empires, such as seen in Daniel's vision in chapter 7. In Revelation 17, those who oppose Judah. There are varying opinions as to whether uh, these four horns are the same four of Daniel's vision, which I think makes the most sense. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Certainly all of these nations brutalized Israel and were uh, savage in their treatment of her. Some think it's the four nations that had scattered Israel up to the point of Zechariah, Egypt, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Assyria. But the point here is that God is going to deal with the nations who have been cruel to Israel. He will bring judgment on them one day and swallow up all of Israel's enemies in triumph. And along with the four horns, Zechariah also saw four craftsmen in verse 20, and he asked, what are these, and what are, they, what are they coming to do? And the craftsmen are coming to terrify the horns, to cast out the horns of the nations that lifted up their horn against the land of Judah to scatter it. So these craftsmen will terrify the horns, or that is, terrify the Gentile powers, <laughs> world powers, who have struck down in the land of Judah. The craftsmen are not identified they likely represent each of the empires that succeeded the one that they overthrew. We know Medo-Persia was conquered by, they conquered Babylon. Alexander the Great then conquered the Persian Empire, then the Roman Empire took over the Greek Empire after the death of Alexander the Great and his kingdom disintegrating. And the Roman Empire, which will be revived at the time of the tribulation, and that empire, as we know from Revelation and Daniel, try to utterly destroy Israel, and they will ultimately be destroyed by the Messiah as he comes at his second coming. Then the Messiah will reign for a thousand years on earth, and the entire earth will be filled with his presence. He will rule within a rod of iron from Jerusalem. God has so many promises to Israel regarding this millennial kingdom. It will be a time of peace and prosperity and amazing. We read about it in so many places in Isaiah, the lamb will lay by the lion. Child will stick their hand in a snake's hole and not be harmed. Jeremiah 3, 11 says this, For I am with you, declares the Lord, to save you, for I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you. The craftsmen are God's instruments to terrify and throw down the nations who have lifted up their armies against the land of Judah in order to scatter it. So one day in the future... Israel will have a final triumph and deliverance from all those who have oppressed her. And it's so easy when you watch the news or you just listen to the rhetoric of the nations today to realize there's nothing new under the sun. It is the same intent 
that's always been from the past. It's still a mindset, mindset to destroy Israel. But God has a different ending for his covenant people. We are commanded to bless Israel, as we see next week, as they are the apple of his eye. When you pray for God's kingdom to come, as we were instructed by Jesus to pray, um, you are praying about this time in the future when God puts an end to war and evil, and when he comes and rescues the remaining remnants of Israel who are still alive, which is only one-third of the nation after the destruction of what Antichrist does. And at that point, Romans 9 through 11 makes it clear, all Israel will be saved, the ones who haven't been obliterated by Antichrist. And Christ comes back to rescue those, and we'll see later in this wonderful book, they'll look on him whom they pierced, and they will mourn for him like one mourns for an only child. They'll finally understand who Jesus is. And you'll come back, and that's when the kingdom will be reset, a millennial reign of Jesus from Jerusalem. So, what do we take away from this chapter? Well, first of all, be encouraged to repent, to return from your sin as the Lord shows you sin in your own heart and, and convicts you. Return to him. Don't postpone. Don't think he doesn't care because you forgot about it for four months. <coughs> be grateful that we can return to the Lord with because he lovingly forgives and restores fellowship. I mean, I hope I don't know the spiritual status of each one of you here, but obviously the gospel message is about judicial forgiveness from the judge of the universe, forgiving those who come to him in repentance over their sin, recognizing Christ's death took the wrath of God on behalf of sinners. And when you come to him for fit, by faith, and put your faith in him and the finished work of Jesus on the cross, you are forgiven. God is no longer your judge. He becomes your father. He adopts you in his family. But that growth and that fellowship that we have ongoing as he's trying to make us more into the image of Christ every day that we live requires continual um, repentance of our sin when we blow it, and that is that return to me. Stay in fellowship with me. Third, we must not presume on the patience of God, as I've said, and drag our feet in areas of obedience he's already showed you. You know what I'm talking about. Things that you think, well, no, I don't really think it's that bad. You know, we justify, or he couldn't really mean that he doesn't want me to do this anymore. And all those kinds of thoughts that we often tend to stuff and ignore, and he keeps bringing it up. Don't presume on his patience. Don't drag your feet. Return to him. And fourth, what an amazing role the pre-incarnate Christ had, praying to the Father for compassion, with compassion for the people in the city of Jerusalem. It reminds me of the role of Jesus in heaven today as our great high priest. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things and is yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to him through him since he always lives to make intercession. That's what our great God is doing on our behalf. This is what he was doing in the book of Zechariah for his people. Amazing. The Lord of hosts has all resources at his disposal. 
for whatever need that we may have. He is God Almighty. He is God over all the armies of heaven and earth. I mean, people get scared about North Korea and what happens if they do this and then all the other countries join in and they do that. And it's easy to fear the armies of the earth. But who is sovereign in control of all the unseen armies in the spirit world? We have no idea the wars going on there moment by moment besides the armies on earth. They are all at his disposal to do his bidding, to accomplish his sovereign plan. There is no shortage then for anything that you need from the Lord of hosts, who is sovereign over all. He is the one in control of all history, and therefore, he's the one in control of all the events of your history. What's happened, what's happening today, and what's going to happen. He is the God of compassion and encouragement. This is our little window to live. This is our little time in history that we're here to make a difference for his glory. This, we don't get a second shot. This is it. We're either laying up treasures in heaven or just living for what's here and now. And it's all going to be gone. and mean nothing. What comforting words were needed for that remnant in Jerusalem who faced such a challenging time. That is what God specializes in. Bringing encouraging words of hope. Speaking words of truth, hope, and love. Do you praise him for his great power? to accomplish anything he deems to accomplish in your life. And six, learn from the failures of Israel so that you do not leave a poor example to your children and how you model what Christ is, who he's like, what he's done in your life, your grandchildren, your neighbors, your friends. Our lives should offer hope as they watch us go through trials and how we cope and who is our strength as they observe our obedience, our dependence. And last, God will always keep his promises to Israel. He will deal justly with all of her enemies. Do you pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Are they on your prayer list? They ought to be. It's commanded in scripture, pray for the people of Jerusalem. Do you pray for the gospel and Jesus the Messiah to penetrate the hearts of the remnant of God's chosen people in Israel? There are many, many who have come to faith. Wonderful church by a man uh, that we support doing a great work in Israel. Since God will keep his word to Israel, we know, ladies, he will keep his word to New Testament believers as well. Therefore, find hope and encouragement in who he is. He is the Lord of hosts. He has all the armies that are seen and unseen at his disposal. And rejoice that when you blow it, you can return to him and he returns to you. Father, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this passage. I thank you for this book. It's intimidating. It's not always easy to face a book studying something with a lot of visions and something we've never done before. But it is your word. I pray we will not um, run from it and not want to bother or excuse why it's too hard. I pray, Lord, that you help us to glean truth from that you want so that we would have more perseverance, so that we would be encouraged from your word. <clears throat> I pray, Lord, for each one here that you will deal in their hearts whether it's to come to you and surrender their life to you and trust you for salvation, or if that is something that they've already done, that they will be diligent to daily keep in right fellowship with you, returning to you, repenting of sin, dealing with things that you've dealt with, Lord. Help us to do what you've shown us you want us to do and be obedient and leave an example and a legacy for those lives 
we have our paths crossed in Jesus' name.